Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God is the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will hear their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots will, shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the, way of the, Lord are, the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray quick. Lord God, your absolute holiness and tenderness are overwhelming to us. You are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, teach us your ways. As we hear and interact with your word, open our hearts. May the Holy Spirit be actively opening our eye to the truth and growing it in our lives. And at the same time, Lord, protect Andrew and Addison while up at Cran Hill as they handle your word. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, and the one in whom we're found. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Well, this week we pause from our Philippians series, and with the retreat, the churchwide retreat up at Cran Hill, wanted to just spend a little bit of time asking the question, like, what does it mean to be a church? Like, what, what, what characterizes a church? What sort of impact does a church have in its community? Uh, what sort of things should we be looking for in ourselves as, as members of a church or those that attend regularly, however you see yourselves? Uh, what, what should we be thinking about the, the corporation or the... Uh, the congregation, the formalized congregation of a local church. There's, of course, a, a lot about this in our world today. You know, we had a, a book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, sort of came out from Grand Rapids and, you know, talking about the evangelical church and different uh, aspects of it. And for many people, especially in America, if you talk about like the evangelical church, it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, folks have uh, gotten sort of a sour taste and 
it, you know, there's a lot to be said uh, for, you know, thinking about that and, and owning some of the reasons why that's been a sour taste in people's, uh, in people's experience. However, it's not the picture that the scriptures give us. And when we start to talk about the church or we start to talk about the people of God, you know, in the Old Testament, you, you talk about Israel or Ephraim, as we heard in our liturgy today, uh, some of these names, Judah, uh, that talk about the people of God. We recognize, like, those are the things that translate to the church in the New Testament. It's the people of God that reflect these. And so I want to spend some time in this minor prophet. And I know that uh, we kind of sometimes feel a little bit intimidated by the minor prophets. There's a lot of cultural distance and uh, how do we understand them. But there, there's so much that is beautiful and relevant uh, as, we, as we dig into the minor prophets. And this one here, uh, Hosea, I don't know if many of you know the story of Hosea, but God would often do things through the prophets to give his people a picture of something, you know, in their reality, a picture of judgment that was to come. Amos would hold up like a level or a plumb line and, and say, you're not matching up, and so there's judgment to come. Ezekiel uh, built a fire with dung, you know, and said, this is what it's like to, to be around you. There's, there's all sorts of dramatic things. Well, one of the most dramatic was Hosea. Hosea, as a prophet, was told by God to go marry a prostitute, go marry a, a woman of whoredom is the word back in Hosea 1 verse 2. The Lord first spoke through Hosea and he said, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went and he took Gomer, the son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore to him a child. It's a dramatic picture God is giving to the church, to the people of God, saying this is what it's like to be married to you. Uh, this is what it's like uh, to be in relationship with you. It's like we sang in... in uh, hymn 457, uh, come thou fount, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. This was the picture. It's a wife who's prone to leave, and she does leave, and Hosea has to go get her back. And in the midst of it, God is saying, listen, I love you, you are my people, uh, and be the church, be the people that I have called you to be. And, and that's where they end up in Hosea chapter 14. So I want to dive into that a little bit this morning. And, and just, you know, in the spirit of this weekend, taking a break from Philippians, just asking ourselves as a local congregation call ourselves evangelicals, we have the good news. Uh, as a local congregation, what does it mean to reflect the beauty of the Lord in the midst of the culture that we live in? And I have three ideas for you. Uh, first of all, if we're going to be this type of community, we need to be humbled, uh, then we need to be lifted up or exalted, and then finally we find that we are spread out. 
So as we walk through the, the book of Hosea, God, like in many of the prophets, has kind of a back and forth with his people. And he's saying, these are the things that I have against you. And kind of comes to a culmination in chapter 14, where he says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Notice that the stumbling is kind of a frame to this whole passage. Verse 9 again, the upright walk in the ways of the Lord, but transgressions, transgressors stumble in them. Uh, the first thing that we need to acknowledge if we are going to understand who we are as God's people is we need to acknowledge that we are stumblers, that we are the prone to wander folks, that we, we get caught up in this web of iniquity, uh, transgression. These are some of the words that the scriptures use to describe the heart's relationship with God. There are several things that God talks to his people about in Hosea. Uh, back in chapter 2 is kind of where he starts this. But if you look in chapter 4, you get a good sort of summary of the Lord's controversy uh, with the inhabitants of the land. He says, there is no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. He says, Israel, I, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you to myself, but you have forsaken a knowledge of me. You've become a secular society. You have driven out God. There's no transcendence. There's no holiness. Uh, there is just simply the material. You are living for your bellies. And you see it, it proceeds from there. When there's no knowledge of God in the land, that's the end of verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 2, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery, breaking all bounds, bloodshed, follow bloodshed. Therefore, even the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, even the fish of the sea are taken away, is what God says in chapter 4, verse 2. There is this, this driving out of God, this closing of the windows to heaven, this, this pure materialism, not in terms of greed or money, but just the stuff of the world uh, driving out the holiness, the transcendence of God. Uh, and it, it, it produces all this ugly fruit, the lying, the cheating, the bloodshed, the adultery, ecological disasters. There's just one thing after another that comes as a result of this. I, I say this is relevant for our time because we, we can see this around the world. We can see it in our own country. You know, there are many in the West Michigan area that have Northern European roots. And we know that in Northern Europe, it, there has been a process of secularization. And, and we see a lot of the immorality that followed here for Israel happening in Northern Europe. We see that same process of secularization uh, coming into America, and, and we see the same immorality that continues to follow. It, it just happens. When we, when we take out God or when we fail to acknowledge God, and I think this is where, 
you know, those of us who are believers, we have to ask ourselves the question, like, are we acknowledging God day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute? Are we, do we have that transcendent sort of portal open in our hearts and lives? Because it makes all the difference in the world. When we fail to acknowledge it, it's so much easier that prone to wander, you know, lying, murder, uh, violence, cheating, adultery, all of these different things that are mentioned here. And then there are other things that, that move in to fill the void. Uh, in, in, um, in Hosea, we see a couple of things, you know, one, again, so totally relevant, uh, many of the people of God turn to politics. Uh, you, you hear God telling them to say, Assyria cannot save us. You know, what were they looking for in their, in their pain? Remember chapter 7, we read this for confession. They're wailing upon their beds. They're, they're feeling the consequences of a life lived apart from God. And one of the ways that they tried to fi fix it was going to Assyria or going to Egypt. You know, there was a right and a left in Israel as well. So if you look in Hosea chapter 6 verse 11, the prophet says, you are like silly doves. You're going from Assyria to Egypt, and you're looking for them to rescue you. Again, the relevance of this is stunning. You know, as we look to the right and the left politically, if we can just make the right alliance, then we will be delivered. But God says, in me, and me alone, is your life. Uh, don't be like these silly doves flitting from the right to the left. Eventually, it ends up with Israel pursuing other gods. Uh, Ephraim is joined to idols. Uh, there are so many places where, throughout this passage, where you see they're looking to the Baals, they're looking to the Astros, they're looking to the high places, they're looking to the cult prostitution, they're looking to all of these different things for their deliverance. The first piece uh, of understanding what it means to be a church is recognizing that we need God. Return to me, he says. When he talks about return, that, that's Old Testament code word for repent. Uh, one of the clearest places we can see this is in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. There, depending on the translation that you have, I think the NIV translates it as repent, whereas the ESV translated as return. It's the same word. It says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, or in returning and rest is your salvation. And, and what God is saying here is if you truly if you truly want to be the church, it starts individually and it continues corporately with acknowledging just how desperate you are, just how prone to wander your heart is, just how like an orphan you cannot do anything on your own. You have no ability uh, to you know, to care for yourself. You have no ability to handle the legal procedures. You have no ability to give yourself status or identity. You have no idea. You are the orphan who is in need of mercy. But here's the good news. Look at how God responds 
to that type of acknowledgement. Verse 4, uh, he says, you know, take with you these words, return, repent, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. Assyria will not save us, renounce these false gods. We will not ride on horses. We're not going to trust our military might. We'll say no more our God to the works of our hands. We're, we're giving up idolatry. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. One of the most stunning things about the book of Hosea is that in the midst of, in the midst of all of this rampant uh, secularization, rampant idolatry, rampant uh, betrayal of God, God continues to pursue and to love a people. There are some of the most beautiful statements of God's love for his people in this little book, 14 chapters. You see there, it's just, it's so freeing, it's so lovely. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely. To be loved freely, isn't that something that all of our hearts long for, whether you are a kid or an adult, whether you're married or single? I mean, to be loved freely. Listen to how God talks in chapter 11. We heard a little bit of this in the uh, Declaration of Forgiveness. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Uh, you know, my people. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like... Adma or Zeboim, these uh, unfaithful countries. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath." Is that how you experience God? The one who is warm and tender, who loves you freely, who does not execute his wrath against you because he is so full of affection. Chapter 2 is probably one of the starkest uh, examples of this. If you look at chapter 2, it's it's full of uh, God's frustration and punishment of Israel. He says in verse 13, he says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she was burning offerings to them, adorning herself with her rings and jewelry, going after other lovers and forgetting me, declares the Lord. I will punish her. And then you have one of the greatest non sequiturs in the whole scripture. Uh, if you look at, you know, it finishes in, in chapter 13. And then in verse 14, I'm sorry, in verse 13, verse 14, God says, Therefore, because she has been so unfaithful, because she has run away with Baals and all these other lovers, therefore, behold, look, listen. I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
I will give her vineyards, make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, the place where Achan sinned and God cursed it. I'm going to make that cursed place a door of hope, uh, God says. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what God is saying here uh, through the prophet He's saying Israel basically can't help herself. She keeps going after all of these other gods, all of these other lovers. Therefore, I am going to step in. I am going to allure her. I am going to speak tenderly to her. I am going to woo her heart back to me. Because this is who I am. If you look back in chapter 14 and you see uh, verse 3 there, first time I've really noticed this, uh, this time through Hosea 14. I really love this passage. I've preached on it before. Uh, Notice, though, the very last phrase there where it says, in you the orphan finds mercy. What I think just implicitly before when I looked at that, I saw that kind of as a summary statement. But what I realized this time is that's part of the prayer that God told Israel to pray. You know, he says, take with you these words, take away our iniquity, accept what is good. He tells them specifically how to pray. Assyria is not going to save us. We'll say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And then he says, speak to me of my essence. In you, the orphan finds mercy. We've been studying, those of us in our theology class on Monday night, the attributes of God. And an attribute isn't just a characteristic, but it's a perfection of the divine essence that cannot be changed. Uh, So, you know, God is patient, which is a characteristic, but he's not always patient. You know, sometimes his patience ends, so that's not an attribute of God. But here, God says, It is always true that the orphan will find mercy. Speak to me of the perfection of my essence that is always merciful for the orphan. And you see, this is the the most fundamental thing that we as a community Uh, sink our teeth into, we we wrap our hearts around, is that we, on the one hand, are more wretched and broken than we ever would have imagined. We are so like Israel. You know, we pursue other lovers. We pursue foreign gods. We We find ourselves, you know, struggling with basic morality. This is, this is what we, we are apart from God. But then God comes into our life, and and God comes into our world, and he says, I will allure you. I will bring you into, uh, I will bring you to me, and I will speak tenderly to you. How can I forsake you? You know, my, my heart is warm and compassionate towards you. I will heal your apostasy. I will love you freely, says our God. Of course, we we see this uh, in an Old Testament perspective, but we see it so clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. 
you know, while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. You know, this is the, the perfection of his essence that continues to, to pour out. He is always merciful. He is always pursuing his people, whether it's from heaven to earth, whether it's in the form of a prophet to a prostitute. God always is putting this picture before his people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can never run fast enough to get outside of my love for you. And, and this is where we stand, like as a church, as a community, both individuals and as a group of people, like this is our identity. We are the orphans that have found mercy in the arms of God. You know, there are so many things that are vying for our identities this, uh, in this age that we live in, whether it's tied with our ethnicity or our gender or our sexuality or any of these different things. You know, they're all wanting to, to claim identity lordship in our life. But God comes to us and says, this is your identity. You are deeply loved even though in and of yourself you are deeply flawed, because I am just exactly that kind of God. And then what's even more beautiful is what he does with these people. And that's really where I want to focus, verses 5 to 7. I will love them freely. My anger is turned with, from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. And then notice the picture that he gives here of the church. He gives this picture of the people of God uh, that blossom like the lily. They take root like the trees of Lebanon, whose shoots spread out. Their beauty is like the olive, the fragrance like Lebanon. They return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am the evergreen cypress. With me comes your fruit. What we see here is we see, first of all, just this incredibly vital living organism. The tree imagery is one that goes throughout the scriptures I mean, literally hundreds of references to, to trees uh, and how it plays into the overall story. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. You got the tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil, shows up again. Uh, Revelation 21, 22, you see the tree of life, you see the trees, the, you know, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, all of that. It's embedded here. We see it in Psalm 1. We read it in Psalm 50. I am like the green olive tree. There's just so much about trees and the imagery in the scripture. And here God is returning to it and he's using it as a picture of the church. Uh, it's stable, it's vital, it's fresh, it's alive, it's growing. Uh, listen to this, blossoming like the lily, taking root like the trees of Lebanon, the shoots spreading out, it's beauty. Uh, like the olive, fragrance like Lebanon. It, it's such a, a beautiful thing. 
Now again, so often, you know, especially right now in this moment, people don't think of that kind of beauty when they think of the church. Many people don't anyway. But that's not necessarily the whole story. I, I think I've shared with you before Philip Yancey and his, um, I can't remember exactly the name of the book right now, uh, but he talks about the, just the work of Christians around the world. Uh, the United Nations estimates uh, that three million women and children are trafficked worldwide each year. Several dozen Christian organizations work to liberate them from prostitutions, which in poor nations constitutes a modern form of slavery. Uh, many of these women come out, they tell wrenching stories of abuse. Uh, they credit the ministries with setting them free and helping them find new careers. One organization alone shelters 500 young women who have been freed from these slavery in Mumbai, India. Also in India, Christians have led the way in embracing the Dalits, formerly the untouchables, and other low castes by building schools and clinics to serve them. Millions from the lower castes in India have subsequently left the Hindu faith, which excludes them from their temples, and they've found a home among Christians. Thanks to such activity, in other countries, the word evangelical has a very different connotation than in the U.S. In the Middle East, for example, the media focus on the clash between the Muslims and the Christians, yet a friend of mine who heads a ministry there says evangelicals in the Middle East are thought of as people with the good news, the very definition of the word evangelical. They have been at the forefront of development, job training, human rights, religious freedom. They've also been out front in medicine, medical education at all levels, and are known to care for the poor. Hospitals and schools founded by missionaries rank among the finest on the Arabian Gulf states. That's not to say that we don't have problems. But the reality is, when God is at work among his people, you see the fruits. There is vital, uh, a lasting relationship. We, we bear the, 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 uh, the, the fruits of that here in our country in terms of schools and hospitals and, and so many other things. And God gives this picture of it spreading out, of it, of it shooting forth. You know, shoot shall spread forth. Uh, they have a fragrance like Lebanon. There was nothing more famous in the ancient world than the cedars of Lebanon. And God said, this is what it's going to be like for you as a people. You are going to have that kind of fragrance. I actually just heard that one of our presidents recently, I think back in the 1950s, he ordered one of these cedars of Lebanon to be brought and to be constructed into something for the White House. I mean, so famous are they. It goes through time and, and continues to come. And God is saying, this is what the ministry of the church is like. It goes forward. It continues. People come and they rest beneath your shade. They return and they dwell beneath my shadow. They flourish like their grain, their fame like the wine of Lebanon. 
Friends, this is, this is what we have to look forward to. This is what <clears throat> we have to step into. God is inviting us to, to be this church, to be his people that spread that out around the world, here in Grand Rapids, uh, in our local communities, to be that community that shows forth this incredible mercy of our God. In him the orphan finds mercy. We go across the world to do it. We go across the street. Uh, we invite people in. We welcome them. We make space. We spent some time at the retreat looking at Acts 2, 42 and following. You know, that picture of the early church where they were together listening to the apostles teaching, praying, um, sharing all that they had in common. And it said daily people were being saved because they were attracted to what was going on. Contra secularized Rome where there were slaves and women were mistreated and all of these different things. It was completely the opposite in the church. And they were adding to their number daily who was being saved. And the people in church expanded their groups of friends. They expanded their community. They gave their money in order that all would be welcome, in order that all would find a place. Now, some of you might be saying, Vandermoss, that's, that's very idealistic. Um, that's just never going to happen that way. I'm more in the prone to wander camp. I could never really do that. I find myself being sort of selfish by nature. I like to uh, receive the benefit from church, but the idea of really sharing it and, and being sort of promiscuous with the love that we have towards others, the God-given love, how am I ever going to do that? The answer's here, and maybe you, you picked it up as we were reading through. Begin in verse 4. Listen to what God says. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. I will be like the dew to Israel. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It's I who answer, and it's I who look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. What God tells us is, I know you. And I know you're never going to do this on your own. I know that you don't have the resources sufficient for really doing this on your own. So I will do it for you. I will be the basis. I will be the supply of all that you need. I will be the dew to Israel. I don't know what you think about dew. Just a minute ago, we had quite a rainstorm. We live in a very green, lush area of the country. We're used to, you know, rains like that that come and water the earth. They weren't really used to that back in Israel. It was a very arid uh, area. And so when they're talking about dew, they're talking about their basic sustenance. Like that was the thing that they lived on. They, they collected the dew. Like that was their water source. So it's not just that the grass is a little moist when you go out to let the dog out in the morning. Uh, this is their lifeblood. And God says, I will be your dew. I am going to give you what you need. I am going to be your sustenance and your source. And that's still our promise. You know, one of the things, when we come to the table uh, monthly, we come to remember 
uh, you know, the, the sacrifice that the Lord made to us. But it's more than that. We, we come to reconnect, to be renewed as we take the, the, the bread, as we take the cup. God promises to be with us in a significant, vital way that we have the strength that we need. One last thing I want to highlight for you. You know, we walk through this passage and, and we basically walk through the story of a Christian, right? Broken, undeserving, secular, idol worshiping, seeking pleasure in anywhere other than God. God steps in, pursues, loves us freely, and, uh, and, and renews us after his image. And then he makes us into a community. He makes us into a church that is beautiful to the world. What's interesting to me is that though that is sort of the order that things happen, it's not necessarily the order that we experience uh, the, the process. And this is why I think it's really important for us to just take a week and, and to realize like as a church... We play a really important role in the ministry of God with his people. Uh, some of you know Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a missionary to India back in the mid-1900s. And he's just a good thinker uh, in terms of the gospel and uh, pluralism and, and all sorts of different things. And, and he makes this observation. He says, in the tradition which I was brought up, it would be normal to begin with a section on faith and work through it probably to a brief concluding section on the church, which is exactly what we did this morning. We talked about faith, our need for God, God's coming to meet us, and then we talked about the result of that, right? The, the church, what that means. He says, after a good deal of reflection, I've decided to reverse the order. There seems to me to be two good reasons for the order that I have adopted. First, he says, if you look at the scriptures, notice that Acts, which is the story of the church, comes before the epistles, which are much more of the detailed uh, story of faith and how we come to it. He's saying we experience the church before we experience the mechanics of how the church was formed. And then he says, secondly, it's the order in which most people, non-Christians, others, have to follow when they come to Christ. What he sees is a visible congregation in his village, in his city, in his community. It is that congregation that holds out to him the offer of salvation. Only when she has come within the fellowship of that congregation does she usually come to any deep understanding of its inner source. There is such a beautiful story of the gospel that Hosea gives us. What Newbegin helps us understand is that as we live it out, that is how people are going to come into contact with it, and they are going to find their way in and then develop its source. And so may God give us strength 
May God give us the help to be faithful in sending missionaries around the world, to be faithful in going across the street to our neighbors, to be faithful in helping in the pregnancy resource clinics, to opening our homes for the orphans and for the widows, to come alongside those who are in desperate need, who are so sad, who are so lonely, whatever it may be. May God give us the grace to be the church, uh, the bride of Christ made pure by his free love, set up to be as famous as the wine of Lebanon. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the way it comes into our world and into our life. Father, we come and surrender ourselves like orphans. We, we know we can't make it happen. We know that we are dependent on you. We know that it is only your love that will allure us, that will uh, love us freely and completely. And so we put ourselves in that place. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that came to a culmination in Jesus. As you have come and, and taken your place amongst us, you've gone to the cross in order that we who are prone to wander, so like Gomer, uh, we who are prone to wander uh, can taste of uh, what it means to be identified as your bride. Father, we pray now that you would help us to soak in these uh, truths, that you would meet us at your table. We pray this all in Jesus' name.